are looking at our church vision. Last week we started looking at that, and we're doing that because we think it's a big deal. We have a vision because we think having a vision is a big deal. You might have noticed around the church this little four-leaf clover that you keep seeing that with these four little emblems that represent our church vision. And our church vision is this, that we want to make disciples who love God, grow in Christ-likeness, serve Christ's church, and go and make disciples. And we want to think over that and grow in our clarity of that because we think being and making disciples like that is the biggest deal ever. That's why we have a vision, to focus us in on this thing. When Paul, our senior pastor, originally shared this vision from the elders, and the first time we looked at this in a sermon series, the series was titled, Why We Are Here. And I don't take that to mean just why does this church exist, I take that to mean why does human life exist? Human life exists that people might love God, grow in Christ-likeness, serve Christ church, and go and make disciples. That is what existing is for. And so we believe that if we are not like that as a church and we are not helping other people become like that as a church, life is being wasted. That's why we're about this. We think this is the means to glorify God and we think glorifying God is the sole purpose of the universe. Why are we looking at our church vision? It's a big deal. We want to focus in on it so that we might go after it harder. Why is it important for you to know the church vision? It's important that you might chase after it. The more clarity with which we see this is what we're here for, the better we'll be at doing it. That's why we have it. That's why we bother saying it. That's why we made a logo. That's why we're looking at it tonight. And tonight we're looking at probably the central piece of it. In fact, definitely the central piece of it. Uh, Ross said last week this is a cluster. It's not a process. It's a cluster. And that's right. But at the heart of that cluster is tonight's topic, love God. It is primary. It is central to our vision. We want to be a people that loves God. And when we say that, we mean we want to be a people that loves the God of the Bible, who worship him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who God is. And we believe we should love him that way because he deserves to be loved that way. He is a God of glory. He is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And so we want him to have the glory of the universe, including the glory of our hearts. We want him to be loved and magnified right in the middle of our chests. And that's the starting point and the central aspect of why we do the other things, growing, serving, and going. So tonight, we're going to dig into Psalm 63, which is a beautiful demonstration of love for God, because we want to learn what biblical love for God looks like. Love has so many different personas in our society, but we want to know what is biblical love for God, that we might pursue it better. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that and turn to page 63. If you don't have a Bible, don't panic, just throw up your hand, and one of the stewards will bring one to you, and we're going to turn together to Psalm 63, which is pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 63. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 5. Seven, nine, Psalm 63. And as people are grabbing Bibles and finding places, why don't we pray together for God's help? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think of this topic of loving you, we know a sad coldness in our hearts. And so we pray tonight that by your word and through your spirit, you would work in us to make us a people that love you profoundly. Would you do that tonight through your word? 
that you might be glorified in this church and that we might better help others come to join us in glorifying you by loving you forever. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalm 63, page 579. We'll read the subscript because it's important. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Amen. This is God's word. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The psalmist loves God. That looks like love. This is an example of passionate, overflowing love. If someone wrote this about you, you'd probably blush. This is love, isn't it? This is much more than duty or mere religion. There is a love for God in the members of the psalmist's body and in the very essence of his being. This is love. And if you're a Christian, you probably get that we're already meant to love God. You probably know that that's something the Bible says we should do. You might think about Deuteronomy 6, which gets quoted in the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. We know this is what we're meant to do. Jesus reminds us that it's important. We know that we're meant to love God, and we know that loving God is going to show up in obedience. As 1 John teaches, people who love Jesus obey what Jesus says we should do. Jesus says that himself, doesn't he? If you love me, you will obey all that I command. But before we try and turn love into just some sort of mere obedience, we can't get past the fact that one of the things we're called to obey is to love him. So even if love looks like obedience... Right at the middle of that call to obedience is to still love him. And we can't get past the fact that biblical love looks like this. This is the love for God that is in the Bible. Throughout the Psalms and in other places, we see this kind of love. It is emotional. It is emphatic. It is passionate. It is personal. That is biblical love for God. And we cannot shy away from that. Love is supposed to come out in songs. People who are in love write poetry. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Love creates poetry and song and affection. This is biblical love. We can't make it into just obedience or just doing stuff. Right in the center of the Bible, we've got this passionate love and longing for God. 
So here's the question as we come to a passage like this. How earnestly could you stand up and sing or say right now, verse 1, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. How earnestly could you sing that? What about verse 8, I cling to you. Could you sing that kind of love song to God? Maybe there's moments where you felt like that, but maybe most of the time you'd rather love was just obedience because that's easier than a command to love the Lord your God with your heart. That's hard, isn't it? So tonight, before we even think about trying to emulate the activity of love that's in this psalm, what I want us to get to is, is why the psalmist loves like that. This is a beautiful expression of what love looks like, but why does the psalmist love the Lord his God like that? Before we start copying that love, we've got to get why he loves the Lord your God like that. So what I want us to do tonight is look at this psalm and learn how to foster love for God. Learn how to stir that up in our own hearts. And the first thing we've got to do to understand why the psalmist loves like this is to understand where the psalmist loves like this. If we could get the first slide, that'd be great. Oh, it's not behind me anyway. Don't worry about it. Love for God. Where does it happen? Look again with me at the subscript. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. End of verse 1, in a dry and parched land. Verse 6, come over the page. On my bed, I remember you through the watches of the night. That idea of being kept up like a, like a watchman. Verse 9, here's the context. Those who want to kill me, there's people coming after the psalmist trying to kill him, will be destroyed. Verse 10, this is a song of the king. This is a song written in a pretty dark situation. It's written in the desert, in a time when the psalmist was being chased. People wanted to kill him. And by the fact that he calls himself the king, it's pretty clear that's a time when he was being chased by his own son, Absalom. In 2 Samuel 15 to 17, you can read about the occasion when this happens. His own son is vying to kill him. This is not a psalm written in comfort or in pleasure or in prosperity. This is not never, never land piety. This is the psalmist writing in the desert. See in verse 4, as long as I live. I don't think he thinks that's going to be long. That's the context of this psalm. The psalm in the desert. This is love in the wild grounded in real life experience. This is the love of a real man. This is not made up. This is desert love. This is where this love blossoms. That's where the love happens, but where does it come from? This is the big thing we need to get our heads around. I want us to see that it's grounded. This is real love happening in a real time, in a real place, and in a real difficulty. But where does that love come from in the psalmist's hearts? How is he like that, and why aren't we like that? Second point, this is love built on encountering God. This is the big idea tonight. If you remember nothing else, this is love built on encountering God. This is the key to unlocking the whole psalm, and it's right there in verse 1. Verse 1 is the key verse to understanding this entire psalm, and I only worked that out on Friday, but it is. Verse 1, look at how this psalm begins. This first line is foundational to the whole thing. The situation is the desert, But here's where the psalmist's head and heart are. Read with me verse 1. You, God, are my God. The circumstance is quicksand, but this is the rock-solid foundation from which the psalmist sings. This is the notion that preempts the psalm and then permeates throughout the psalm. 
The idea that the psalmist has met with God so much so that he could say, you are mine and I am yours. There is a relationship between the psalmist and his God. The person he's longing for in verse 1, thirsting after, is somebody he knows. This is somebody he's met. You, God, are my God. He is not confused, searching for some sort of deity. He knows him, and so he longs for him. The psalm begins with an expression of knowledge and intimacy and encounter. This is covenant language. This is the language of people who are bound in a relationship of promise and love, founded in what God has promised to do and what God has done. Think about what the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will be your God and you will be my people. David is saying, yes, that is me. I'm in that relationship. I'm in that covenant. You are my God. No doubt about it. And the psalm will only make sense to us, and we can only start to get into the psalm and emulate the psalm if we understand that love for God can only happen when people have met with and encountered the living God. You will not love him unless you've met with him. This longing and this confidence and this praise is founded in the fact that there is a relationship between the person of the Godhead and the person of the psalmist. They have met. There is an encountering that has occurred. You cannot be a lover of God without that. We're going to look at this encounter together. In fact, let's come and do that now. Look at this encounter between the psalmist and his God. Verse 2. This is the encounter that's happened. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. His mind runs back to a moment of encounter in the temple of God where David himself says, I saw you, I met with you. I know you, I have seen you in your majesty. I'm longing for this person that I've seen with my eyes. He has known something of God. God has made himself known to the psalmist in these ways. Could you say that? I've seen the glory of God. Could you say I've seen God's personal power? Could you say that you've known those qualities, met with those qualities in a way which has powerfully changed you? Have you encountered God in that kind of way? In a way where you love him, not because of the benefits you would get from knowing him, but because of him. It is not love to say, I love the perks of being with her. I love the fact that we get to use our two-for-one cinema voucher on a Tuesday night. That is loving the benefit, not loving the person. The psalmist loves the person. I long for you because I've seen you, not the perks. He's met with him in this way. He does not love God because God gave him a better building. Loves God because of the person who God is, the qualities that belong to him. And I'm not saying this will have happened to us in a tabernacle or in a temple or in a physical, physical building space like it has for David. But God has put these things on display that we might see them, beheld them. He has made these things manifest in a way which can change us. Think about the way John, the writer of John's gospel, speaks. This is the encounter that we can have. He says this about the Lord Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What happened? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory. John had seen it and through the Spirit had understood what that meant. 
He'd met with the glory of God, and John's life was changed forever to the point where he would define himself as somebody who, who was loved by God and who loves God. Have you seen and beheld the glory of God in that way? Come with me to see how this can still happen to us. In a place like 2 Corinthians 4, this is so beautifully displayed. If you've got fast thumbs, turn with me, but if not, uh, just listen and I'll read it to us. We might not have seen the person of Jesus, the glory of God, walking around physically in the room, as John the disciple had, but we can still behold the glory of God. Look at this in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. This is where we were this morning in Hoyk. Verse 4, we can see that we had a problem with perceiving the glory. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We couldn't perceive it in our natural selves, but God did something in us. And now verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. What's happened? To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We've seen it. If you become a Christian, this is what has happened. Something has dawned on you that the gospel and the Christ of that gospel is glorious and you have seen it to be glorious. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, his son sent to save? Have you seen the glory, the arm of the Lord, his power displayed in this action? Have you seen the glory? He has placed it on earth and he has placed it in his word. You can read of this Christ in the Bible and see in these pages the face of Christ which is the image of God to whom belongs all glory. Have you seen it? It's not just visible in Christ and in his word. It's visible in Christ's people, isn't it? The next verse of this psalm says we have this treasure, the glory of God in the face of Christ in us. The glory of God is in the midst of his people. Have you seen the glory of God in other people? His power at work in other people, in lives that have been saved by the gospel and that are being transformed by the gospel. Do you see the glory of God as you look around the room tonight? As you're with your growth group, do you see God's glory and power made manifest in transformed lives by the gospel? Have you seen the glory? The psalmist says seeing God in this way, encountering God in this way has changed him massively. He has encountered the living God, and he has encountered the living God in his love. Come with me back to Psalm 63, page 579. He's seen the glory of God, and the reason he's been able to see it is because in God's love, God has shown him. God has shown him. Come with me to verse 3, just over the page. Psalm 63, verse 3. Look at the love he says that he's met with. Because your love is better than life. There's a comparison because your love is better than life. The covenant love that the psalmist is in, that has led God to reveal his glory, the psalmist says, is better than living. Better than living. Life is this amazing gift of God, but the psalmist says, I prefer you, the giver, to life, the gift. I love you more than life itself. The psalmist has met with God and felt his love in a way which would make him say that. This is a psalmist who is blown away by the love of God and the person of God to the point where he says, verse 5, that meeting with God and knowing God is more satisfying than the richest of foods. Quite literally, that is more satisfying than marrow and fat. That's good, isn't it? That's juicy language. That's gravy language. I'm from Manchester. We love gravy. 
I love United too, but they lost. (laughs) Have you met with God and met with his love in a way where you would say, it is the most satisfying thing in the universe. It is better than all that life has. That's why the psalmist thirsts for him. He thirsts for him because he knows that the only thing that will satisfy that thirst is God. Think about thirst as a type of desire. People get cravings and itchings for stuff, but thirst must be quenched. The psalmist has said, I have met with you in a way where now I desire you in a way where I must be satisfied. I must have you. I must taste of you again. Have you met with God in that kind of covenant love? Would you say, I have met with God's love in a way which has made me think his love is better than life? Would you say that? Would you say the love for God that you know is better than family, better than breathing, better than kissing, better than fresh air, better than sunsets? Is that the kind of love you've met? Is that the kind of love you think the Lord Jesus has for you? Again, this is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus. This is where the covenant love of God is made beautiful, put on display for us, shown to us. Ross read to us, this is love. This is this covenant love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Have you met with that love? You might know about it factually, that Jesus died for sinners and you're one of them and that's great. But have you met with that love in a way way which made you say, that is the best thing ever. I pine for that love. Have you met with, with that love in a way which has made you see how beautiful it is? A love which would bleed for you to be saved. A love which would take on a cross for a sinner like you or like me. Have you known that kind of love? A love that is so satisfying. Think about the way in which the love of God is satisfying. Like marrow is satisfying to the mouth and to the belly. Have you seen the satisfaction that this love brings? This is a love that brings satisfaction which life doesn't. We are itchy and restless, but God's love can satisfy truly. Have you met with a love that gives you significance? Think about the significance people crave in this world that we do so much to feel significant. But here it is, a love that gives us ultimate importance. 1 John again, see what love the Father has lavished upon us that we might be called children of God. That is ultimate significance. And John says, and so we are. This love gives significance. It grants security. Oh, love that will not let me go. So much in life lets go of us. But this is a love that's secure, that we can never be separated from. Have you met with this love? Would you say somebody in the universe tonight loves you this way, and that person is God? A love which would give you full and free access to him, your soul's delight forever, found in one place, his son, the Lord Jesus. This is a love better than life. And this is how people who've met with that kind of love talk. One person who met with that love is the Apostle Paul. And here's how he talks about having met with that love in the Lord Jesus. He says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, that's that comparison word again, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. What does he think about them? I consider them garbage, excrement, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Love that is better than life. Have you met with that love? Come back with me to Psalm 63. It is important to see this is not just a a high experience of God that the psalmist has got over. 
There is an ongoing relationship here. We won't spend too much time on this, but do you see how in the rest of the psalm, in the middle of this desert, this is not just a temple interaction. This is ongoing. Verse 5, I will be satisfied, the expectation. Verse 6, on my bed, presently, even as I'm up at night, fearful of my enemies, I'm remembering you. I'm thinking of you. I'm encountering you. Right now, verse 7, you are my help. Verse 8, I cling to you, and your right hand upholds me. There is an ongoing interaction. Love for God, yes, it begins with an encounter of God, but it is sustained by continuing encounter with God. You will not have a healthy love for God if you are not in good relationship with him. That's impossible. Love for God begins with his love for us. Love for God continues with his ongoing love for us. We must encounter God. This is a love that he has created us to know. This is a love that is plain to see in his son, the Lord Jesus. And you see how when the psalmist has met with that love, suddenly he becomes somebody who loves God. And boy, does he love God. You can't miss it in the psalm, can you? You skim over those verses, love is everywhere. But it begins with the love of God. It is based on an encounter with the living God. You can't get past that. Here's what that love looks like. It's important that we understand what love looks like. So third point, this is love expressed. That is how the love was fostered. That's where it came from. That's what keeps it alive is encountering God. But we'll fly over what this love looks like in the psalmist. Such a beautiful love, isn't it? Like I say, I would love for somebody to write this about me. This is beautiful language. And it is profound. Look at the variety of expressions of love. First one we might see is the longing. Verse 1, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Amid genuine thirst, David just sees that as something to illustrate his thirst for God. In the desert, when his lips were chapped, he just thought about the chapped lips of his heart for his Lord. Love looks like longing, doesn't it? That makes so much sense. Somebody says, I long for you. You feel loved by that. Love naturally expresses as longing. It is a great way to show it. It's even in Greece. You're the one that I want. You are the one for. I don't know the rest. That's what love looks like. You're the one that I want. Longing is love. And it's put on display in in this psalm. Who wouldn't feel loved by a longing like that? And that longing is mirrored in verse 5 by the satisfaction of that longing. Satisfaction is a form of love. If I said to someone, I am delighted in you, nothing would make me happier than being with you tonight, just being around you. That would satisfy me more than anything. That's loving. That's beautiful love. And that's what the psalmist says of God. It's like marrow. More than anything in the world, what I want is you. And when I have you, I am satisfied. That's what love looks like. Yeah, it's obedience. Yeah, it's going, serving, and growing. But it is this too. This is an essential thing for us to understand. Next expression of the love that the psalmist has, worship. It is unmissable, isn't it? Look at all the singing and praising that's going on. Verse 3, notice all of the becauses. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Again, at the end of verse 5, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Again, as he thinks about being under the shadow of his wings, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. Verse 8. Because God's love has been encountered, now it overflows in song. Love always becomes poetry. This is what it is. 
Do you see that he's singing because of what the Lord has done? He's not saying, I know I'm meant to love you, so I'm going to sing. No, I love you, and so I sing. I love you, and so I'm singing. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. Because you are more satisfying than marrow, with my marrow-dripped lips, I'm going to sing your praise as I reflect on how satisfied I am with you. This overflows into acts of physical worship. Do you see the physicality of it? Lips, hands, mouth, even writing out the psalm. It's a physical thing, isn't it? We are designed. Our anatomy is designed for the worship of God. It's why we have hands. It's why we have lips to do things like this. And God deserves that. Yes, he commands it, but he deserves and commands it because he's like this. He deserves and commands it because he is beautiful. He is loving. He is powerful. He is glorious. That's why he deserves the praise. And that's why he gets the praise. Because he is that, and he has been that forever, and he will be that forever. We are wired to worship. It is so natural. This is in our nature to be creatures of worship. People sing all the time. People lift up their hands at the front of concerts that are just about people. This is natural behavior for us. And the psalmist has said, I found the place where you've designed my nature to be expressed. As we meet with the living God in the gospel, this is right. Our bodies are meant to praise the Lord Jesus. And this is not some whipped up worship because the sound of the lighting was good. This is truth worship. This is based on true theology that the psalmist has met with. True encountered theology will always result in bodily doxology. If you have a right and a met understanding of who and what God is and what he has done, it will express in praise. It must. Next expression. The mind of the psalmist shows love for God. Do you see that in verse 6? On my bed I remember you. That's an activity of the mind. I think of you through the watches of the night. Consideration, uh, recollection is an act of worship. In the night of terror when so much else could have plagued the psalmist thinking, he says, I'm thinking about you. I'm remembering you. I'm not going to forget that. It is a loving thing to say you thought of someone, isn't it? It's a great thing when you get a text and someone says, hey, I was just thinking of you, praying for you. It's a lovely thing to be considered by people. That is a way of expressing love for God. Yes, lips, hands, and instruments are organs that God gives us to praise, but so are our brains. Next expression of love, towards the end of the psalm, verse 8 to 11, clinging and contentment. Do you see that? Let's read together verses 8 to 11. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Do you see the love that's in that? It's not as obvious as the love of singing, but this love is genuine. Clinging to someone is genuine love. And it is reciprocated love, isn't it? God has got hold of the psalmist, and the psalmist embraces that and has hold of God. That's loving. Glorifies God as he does that. And he glorifies God in verses 9 to 11. Even as he thinks about his enemies, do you see the the contentment and the steady trust that's in God? These guys are after me to kill me. But I trust you. I know where I stand. I know who my God is. I know what I'm going to do. The king will rejoice in God. 
And whatever else happens, it's in your hands. Trust and commitment is an expression of love. All of this beautiful biblical love in this psalm, we could think about that for ages. But before we start to think about the application, I want to say that this isn't the application. Point number three is not the application of this passage. Controversial moment. We might think that doing these things is the key thing from tonight's sermon. We're called to love God, love him. This is what love looks like, do it. But I don't think that's right. I think that we should express our worship in these ways. That is absolutely right. But I hope you can see that in that middle point lies the key application. And ensuring that we know how to foster genuine love in our hearts. Right, biblical love for God based on his covenant love for us. Making sure we have that stops us from being people who are involved in some sort of dead religion. Who are involved in some sort of false worship. We have to make sure we're meeting with God personally. Otherwise, if we just do the activity of this psalm, that's not it. That's not love. We have to make sure that a genuine encounter, an ongoing relationship with God is right at the heart of who we are as a church and then what we're doing as a church and then the kind of disciples we, want, disciples we want to make as a church. We want this for people and we want this for us. Hear me right on this. I am not saying we need to feel gooey feelings inside before we do any sort of singing. I'm not saying that when the band comes up in a minute that unless you're feeling some tingly feeling, you shouldn't praise God. I've not lost my evangelical marbles, okay? I've not gone off the rails. I don't think that you have to have a soul bursting to do this all of the time. Our souls aren't bursting all of the time. But what I am saying is if, you, if we never feel this and we're consistently content to have a cold and a dead Christianity, that is wrong. That is not biblical. This is biblical love. There are moments when we don't feel it, and the psalmist feels that too. And the psalmist wrestles with his own soul and says, why are you downcast? Why are you not feeling like Psalm 63 all the time? We have to wrestle with that. But we should wrestle with that, because it's right that we feel Psalm 63 love. We shouldn't be content to just have a numb, numb, numb Christianity. We should have an encounter with God, and we should desire that that encounter would be ever better. That is right. That is Christian. So how can we learn from the psalmist how to foster this love that we might then go on to worship him in this way? Here it is. I think we should seek to encounter God in his covenant love and to behold him in the place where he has put his power and glory on display. Simples. It's not that simple. That's easier said than done, isn't it? We've mentioned some of the places where God has put his power and his love and his glory on display, namely in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, recorded for us in his word and made manifest in his people, the church. That's true. These are the places we should look. It is a right application of this passage to say, read your Bible, pray every day. That's true. Come to church. Hear the Bible preached. Look at God's people in your growth group or at young adults or at international fellowship. That's right and that's true. Yes and Amen. But what I want to do tonight is challenge us not to do those things because we know we should do them and we know this is where it happens, but to challenge us to do it in a right way. I know that most people here do that. I know that most people here are here preaching most weeks and read the Bible probably most days or go to a small group. But we need to do it in a way where we chase after, where we really pursue a proper encounter with God. And here's my suggestion on how we can do it. Two things, pleading and peering. 
pleading and peering. As we do those exact same things which we normally do, let's do them pleading and peering. Pleading. As we listen to sermons, as we read our Bibles, as we go to growth groups, we should be screaming at the Lord, show me your glory in a way that's going to change my heart. I don't see it. I just came into church and I don't see anything of the glory of God. And that's wrong because it's here. So help me see it. Give me right eyes. I need you to take me to spec savers that I might see these things. The psalmist does that. Think about Psalm 119 verse 18. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. I don't see the wonder in this text right now, but it's there. Help me see it. Pleading. Show me the wonder. Give me something in this which is going to make my heart think, wow, this is vaster than the universe when I read texts about your love. The psalmist asks God to do this in him. Think about Psalm 90 verse 14 about this satisfaction idea. He's praying, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. I don't feel satisfied with it. I'm looking at my life and it seems better than your love, but your word says that's wrong. So show me. Show me that your love is better as I listen to this sermon or as I read this text in the Bible. As I go to church, please do this in me. Plead. And then peer. Peering is us pursuing that God would answer the, pl- the prayer, the pleading. Peer at those places. Gaze into the text of the Bible. Gaze at the church. Let your eyes linger on those things as you ask God to show you the glory that's in them. It is far too easy, and we are far too easily satisfied to read our Bible in the most boring way ever. I feel it nearly every day. I'm just chuffed that I read it and said a three-minute prayer and still made the right bus. I'm satisfied with that. That is rubbish. I can walk away from a text which was full of the manifest glory of God, and I haven't beheld any of it. So I've got to peer and plead harder. Show me the glory in this text. In fact, Martin, let's ask myself some questions. What in this text tells me that this is better than life? What in this text shows me something that should satisfy my soul? What in this text or in this growth group shows me something that is glorious and powerful? How can I make this move my soul more? Those are right questions to ask as we read our Bible. Robert Murray McShane is perhaps the greatest living example of this. No, not living, dead example of this. His morning devotions went this way. He woke up early, deliberately avoided human contact before he got into his study to read the Bible. He wasn't prepared to see another face until he'd seen the face of Christ in the Word. Here's how his morning devotions went. He didn't say, I'm going to read two chapters and do my prayers and go. He stayed in the Word until he had seen the face of Christ. Then he was ready for a day. That is commitment to pleading and peering. Show me the face of Christ in the Word. Think about it as you listen to sermons. Long for the glory. Come through the door to church on a Sunday morning saying, Lord, show me the glory. Show me your power. I love that we're doing a series in Isaiah 53 right now. What's the only application of that text? Behold the Lamb. Behold the love. Behold the glory. That's what we've been doing as we've studied Isaiah 53. So coming to church as we finish it in a couple of weeks' time saying, show me the glory of Christ's death. This is what we're meant to be doing, letting our minds linger on. It takes commitment, and it might be slow, and it might be steady, but it is of paramount importance that we are not content with a numb love as Christians. We want to be a church where God's love is known, where people encounter him properly in a way which makes them love him forever. 
We want to meet with his love in a way which would stir us to praise like the psalmist praises. That wants to be to his glory in song and be to his glory in serving and going and growing. We want to be like that to the Lord's glory. So let's plead and let's hear. Let's pray.